Good morning. <clears throat> the story was, the children's story was a nice lead-in to some of the things I want to share with you this morning, that God shows us grace, and that's really kind of my topic this morning as well. So I, give it, I gave it the title, The Throne of Grace. On November 28th, uh, last fall, Susie and I attended the funeral of her oldest, of her oldest sister, Mary, in Winnipeg. And uh, at the service that afternoon, Mary's son-in-law, Scott, had the devotional, and he based his thoughts on Hebrews 4.16, our call to worship. Maybe let's read that again. This is what he based his thoughts on at at the funeral. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And Scott, among other things, reminded the mourners that a throne is where a king rules from. I'd never thought of it quite that way, but he says, listen to me, he says, a throne is where a king rules from. And he continued and he said, this throne could have been called the throne of power, it could have been called the throne of authority, it could have been called the throne of glory, a thousand other things. But here it's called the throne of grace, to which we may come boldly in our times of need, and in this case it was, of course, sorrow and bereavement, and not be rejected, but instead be offered mercy and grace, mercy for our failures and grace for our needs. So afterwards, at the lunch, at the funeral, I went to find Scott, And I thanked him for his words of encouragement and comfort for the family, and I asked him if he minded if I would someday use some of those thoughts in a message. And, uh, of course, he agreed, by all means, he says, if this message can be an encouragement to other people, you have my blessing. So some of the thoughts I will be sharing with you this morning are not original with me. I have to thank Scott for some of that. And coming back to the idea of the throne of grace, the question naturally arises, what exactly is grace? And so I took my faithful concordance, and I looked up the word grace, and I found that grace is definitely a dominant theme In the New Testament, and one writer defines it as the action of a caring God offering forgiveness and relationship and eternal life, not because of any merit in ourselves, but simply because of his great self-sacrificial love. Grace, you might say, is God's love in action. The very center and core of the Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God the sweetest, most beautiful word in any language. And I discovered discovered that the term grace is used more often in Romans than in any other book. And I thought back to our study in Romans last spring in our adult Sunday school class, and so I dug up some of my notes from that, and I decided on Romans 3, 21 to 26, which... uh, Uh, Matt read earlier for us, for the basis of my message, this happened more than three weeks ago, 
two days later, on July 31st, on a Sunday morning, some of you might recall that. If not, you can look back and, and check if I was right or not. But anyway, that Sunday morning at breakfast, I took our Daily Bread devotional book, and I looked up the reading for that day. And I said to Susie, this is uncanny. I just chose, I've just chosen a few days ago exactly these verses for my, for the for my, the basis for my message, and here they are again. What are the odds? Some of you might say, well, that was just a coincidence. Susie's answer was, it's a God thing. I should listen to her more often, shouldn't I? And even this morning, this is really uncanny. At breakfast time, I opened the daily bread again, and the reading began, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. That was a cross-reference to Hebrews 4.16, our call to worship. So twice God confirmed to me that I was on the right track. Paul has been presenting earlier in Romans, if you look at the rest of the chapter or the rest of the book, Starting with chapter 1, Paul has been presenting the picture of human depravity and condemnation for what it was, utter darkness. You might want to turn to Romans chapter 3 to our scripture reading again this morning in your Bibles. And we read earlier in our call to worship, which I just referred to, That we are to draw near. Near is the opposite of far, by the way, in case you didn't know that. We are to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And if you contrast that thought with Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, we read Adam saying, I heard your voice, meaning God's voice, and I was afraid and hid myself. They hadn't been afraid of God's voice before, but now sin had entered their world, and they were afraid. The relationship was broken. I'm going to tell you a few stories this morning. I like stories. It helps me to remember, and I hope it helps you to remember. I went to a private school for four years. I, for my grade 9, 10, 11, and 12. So I was 14 years old when I went to the MCI. And I wasn't always a good boy. You probably, most of you probably find that hard to believe, but that's the truth. Uh, The MCI rules were quite strict when I went to school there. That I won't tell you how many years ago that was. The rules were quite strict. And the punishment for breaking those rules was usually quite severe. Anyway, we disregarded that one night. Some of us guys, we decided we would sneak out of the residence. See, we had a curfew, eh? From, I think from grade, from, yeah, from 7 p.m. on after supper, we were to be in our rooms doing our homework and studying We got a little break again at 9 o'clock, but we weren't to leave the residence. That was the rules. But a few of us decided, well, we're going to see if we can get away with it. We had a plan. We won't be found out. 
So anyway, we snuck out of the residence. Nobody found out. And uh, I don't know how long we were away from the residence where we shouldn't have been, but we were. I won't tell you what we all did. But uh, we were away, and, and at the, the preset time, the predetermined time, we uh, came back to the residence, and we snuck back in, and we thought, oh, we, we did good. Nobody, nobody, nobody discovered us. We made it in and out, and uh, nobody knew. But the supervising teacher, whether he heard an unusual noise somewhere, I'm not sure even to this day, or did some of the goody-goodies squeal on us, I'm not sure about that either. <laughs> But anyway, we were found out, but no names were given. Uh, nobody knew who it had been, but somebody knew somebody had been disobedient and had left the residence, okay? So the teacher, not having any names, he wandered up and down the boys' residence hall, and he knocked on every door, and he questioned all the boys in the residence, where were you between 7 o'clock and whatever time it was when he came? Where were you? And he came knocking on my door, of course, as well. And he op- I opened the door, and he said, So, Henry, uh, where were you f- uh, after 7 o'clock tonight? Uh, were you in your room studying? Yeah. I said, I was in my room studying. I lied to him. What could I do? Uh, because I knew the punishment would be rather severe. I might even have, uh, they might even call my parents at home and then the punishment would be more severe. But, <clears throat> but anyway, so he left, he left the room and went, went on down the hall to talk to some of the other boys, and uh, I, tried to, I sat at my desk and tried to do my homework because I was way behind by now. So anyway, I couldn't concentrate on what I was doing, and my conscience started to bother me so bad, and I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to f- face the music i got to go ta- tell this teacher that I lied to him. And so I shuffled down the hall. I didn't go confidently to the throne of grace or the teacher's office that night. I uh, went rather slowly and uh, knocked timidly at the door, and he says, come in. And he said, what can I do for you? And uh, I sat across the desk from him, and I said, sir, when you came to my door tonight and asked me where I'd been after 7 o'clock, I lied to you. So, well, what happens, happens, eh? And he, he looked at me for a long time, and then he looked at his desk for a long time, and then he asked me, so what are we going to do? And I, I shrugged, and I said, it's your call. And he looked at the desk again, and then he looked up at me, and he says, this is what I'm going to do. And, oh, I thought, oh, here it comes. He says, there will be no punishment. He said, because you were man enough to come and see me and to admit you're wrong, I will not punish you. You can go to your room. But before you do, can I pray for you? And I thought, please do. And when I went back to my room, I don't think my feet touched any of the tiles all the way down that long hall. I had experienced grace. This is just a small picture. And Paul in Romans, if we're coming back to our chapter, this is earlier on in the the chapter, Paul writes that there is no no one righteous, no not one, and that the whole world is guilty, 
and no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. And so we can summarize the first three and a half chapters of Romans with three words, we have failed. We have failed. And then, suddenly, in verse 21, the beginning of our scripture reading for this morning, suddenly, in verse 21, the words, but now. You can underline that if you don't mind messing up your Bible. But now. But now what? But now what? Paul is excitedly, excitingly, at least, sorry, pointing out a dramatic contrast. Verse 21 marks a significant transition point. But now, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Let me say something about the righteousness of God. Firstly, when it says the righteousness of God, it's not of man. God is the source of this righteousness. And secondly, this righteousness meets and solves all the problems of human sinfulness. And thirdly, this righteousness is apart from the law. It has no connection with any human effort to gain God's favor, and it's available to everyone. It's available to everyone. And lastly, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22 says, to all who believe. It's an amazing message. We hear it so often, we start to, it becomes commonplace. We almost take it for granted. We've heard that before. But it's an amazing message. Sinners like you and I, who place our trust in Christ, receive this righteousness as a gift. Verse 24, freely, as a gift, credit where credit is not due. Another story. This isn't mine. Max Lucado, I enjoy his, we got, we got scads of Max Lucado books in our bookshelf. And I was paging through this, that's quite a few months ago now, and I found this story, and I'll kind of give it to you in my own words, but it's pretty much the way Max would tell it. But uh, it bears retelling. This fellow was shopping at the local superstore. I don't think that Max said superstore. Excuse me. So he was shopping at the superstore, and he didn't need, he didn't need much. He just wanted some coffee and a loaf of bread. And he's standing in line at the checkout counter. Behind him is a lady with a full cart. It's overflowing with groceries and, and uh, clothing and even some toys for her kids. And as he steps up to the checkout, the clerk invites him to draw a piece of paper out of a fishbowl. If you pull the correct slip, the lady tells him, all your groceries are free. And he says, how many correct slips are there? And she says, only one. And the bowl is full, so the chances are slim. But he reaches in, and wouldn't you know it, he pulls out the winning ticket. But then he realizes he's only buying coffee and bread. What a waste. But this guy is quick. He turns to the lady behind him, the, the one with the mountainous stuff, And he proclaims, well, what do you know, honey? We won. We don't have to pay a penny. (laughs) And she stares at him, and he winks at her, and somehow she has the wherewithal to play along. 
And she steps up beside him and she puts her arm in his and she smiles. (laughs) And for a moment they stand side by side, wedded by good fortune. And in the parking lot, she consummates the temporary union with a kiss and a hug and goes on her way with a grand story to tell her friends. And Max continues and he says, I know what he did was a bit shady. He shouldn't have lied. She shouldn't have pretended. But that taken into account, it's still a great story. And he says, it's not a story too distant from our own. We, too, have been graced with a surprise. Even more than that of the lady. For though her debt was high, she could have paid it. We can't begin to pay ours. And we, like this lady, have been given a gift, a gift of grace. And we, too, have become a bride, not just for a moment, but for eternity. Don't we have a grand story to tell our friends? And so we go, as one writer suggests, from the darkest verse in the Bible, verse 23. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, to what he considers the brightest verse in the Bible, the very next one, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace. Surprised by grace. Paul uses four key words to describe the amazing process. And the first word is in verse 24. You can underline justified. Justified is to be declared righteous, to stand approved or accepted. And the second word is my theme for this morning, grace. Meaning that our justification is God's generous gift to us. Everyone needs this gift. God provides this gift. Faith receives this gift. And the third word, still in verse 24, is redemption. This has to do with the price paid for the gift and for this right relationship with God. And the price was nothing less than the sacrificial death of Jesus. His life was the price that was paid And the price so much magnifies the marvel of the free gift. And the fourth word word is in verse 25, propitiation, or in some translations, atonement. In other words, Jesus died in our place for our sins, and his righteousness has been credited to us. During a British conference many years ago on comparative religions, scholars debated what belief if any, was distinct to the Christian faith? Was it incarnation? Was it resurrection? And on and on the the debate went. What, What was unique? What word, if any, was unique to the Christian faith? And the debate went on and on till C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and he heard what was going on and he said, that's easy, it's grace. And John Newton, the converted English slave trader overcome by his own unworthiness, was led to compose the classic hymn, Amazing Grace. 
Is it any wonder that people in hundreds of languages sing that song? Agnostics, skeptics, even hardened criminals have been brought to tears upon hearing that song. Another story. Is that okay? Too many stories? This one is quite a few years back. I remember a story that, that Peter Harms told in one of his messages many, many years ago. Some of you, when, when I tell it, some of you might remember. It was said in the early 1800s, a, a certain young man's father was a friend of Tsar Nicholas I, and because of that, the young man had been given a rather responsible position. Excuse me. It was his responsibility to see that the right amount of money was paid or distributed each month to the soldiers in his barracks. The young man meant well, but his character was not up to his responsibility. He took to gambling. Eventually, he gambled away a great deal of the government's money as well as all of his own. And in due course, the young man received notice that a representative of the czar was coming to check the accounts, and he knew he was in trouble. That evening, he got out the books, and he totaled what he owed. Then he went to the safe and got out his own pitifully small amount of money. And as he sat there, he looked at the two sums, and he was overwhelmed at the astronomical debt versus his own small change. And he decided, at, and he was despaired at the thought of being found out. And then he decided, he became so distraught that he decided to take his own life. He pulled out his revolver, he placed it on the table before him, and he wrote a summation of his misdeeds. And at the bottom of the ledger, where he had told his illegal borrowings, he wrote, A great debt, who can pay? And he decided that at the stroke of midnight, he would die. As evening wore on, the young soldier grew drowsy and eventually fell asleep. That night, Tsar Nicholas I, as was, his, as was sometimes his custom, was making the rounds of this particular barrack. Seeing a light, he stopped, he looked in, he saw the young man asleep. He recognized him immediately, and looking over his shoulder, he saw the, le- the ledger book, and he realized all that had taken place. He was about to awaken the young man and put him under arrest. When his eyes fastened on the young man's message, a great debt. Who can pay? Suddenly, with a heart of compassion and generosity, this noble czar reached over, took the pen, and wrote one word at the bottom of the ledger and then quietly slipped out of the room. The young man suddenly awoke in the middle of the night. He glanced at the clock and he reached for his revolver. But as he did so, his eye fell upon the ledger. There was his writing, a great debt, who can pay, and underneath it was the word the Tsar had written, Nicholas. The soldier was dumbfounded. He went to the the safe to find material that bore the signature of the Tsar. He compared the writing. It was the Tsar's signature. 
He said to himself, the Tsar has seen the book. He knows everything. Still, he is willing to forgive me. The young soldier rested on the word of the Tsar, and the next morning a messenger came from the palace with exactly the amount needed to meet the deficit. Only the Tsar could pay, and the Tsar did pay. Isn't that our story as well? Only the Lord Jesus was able to pay our debt to God. We look at the, at the moral requirement of God's righteous law. Spelled out in his word, we compare it with our own tawdry performance, and we have to say, a great debt, who can pay? And the Lord Jesus steps forward and signs his name to our ledger. Only Jesus can pay, and he does. So how do we react to all of that? What are you thinking? Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, The ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. Let me repeat that. Think about this. The ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. Those who know their unworthiness reach for grace as as the thirsty reach for water. One more story. A young man had just come to a new town. He was new in town. He started to attend a local church. And then one Sunday he was invited to join the church family at a at a picnic in the park. Everyone, everyone was to bring something for lunch. So, living alone as he did, he wrapped up a couple of jam sandwiches and a drink and headed for the park. He sat down at one of the picnic tables and began to unwrap the sandwiches. And he looked over to the next table where a family was sitting and he noticed the mother unpacking the cooler Salads, fried chicken, pie. Now you're getting hungry. It's almost 12 o'clock. You can go soon. And the mother of the family looks over to his table and she sees him sitting there with his two dry sandwiches. And she calls over to him. She says, come join us. We'll put all our food together. You can eat with us. And this young man, he, the way he writes the story, he says... They didn't need my sandwiches, but I sure needed their chicken. (laughs) What that family did for the young man is a small picture of what Jesus does for us. He welcomes us to his table. We have nothing to offer, and he gives us everything. What are some of the gifts of grace or blessings of grace that God provides for us. As I researched that subject, and it's an inexhaustible subject, really, I'll only refer to one chapter. But as I uh, researched the subject, I began to feel terribly guilty. 
and I think we all should. The reason I felt guilty because I'm guilty of taking God's blessings for granted. And I'm also very guilty of not thanking him enough for those blessings. So if you want to, you can turn to Romans chapter 8, and I'll highlight a few things in Romans chapter 8 before we close. My most favorite chapter in all of Scripture. That's not being sacrilegious, is it? Romans chapter 8. Some of the, some of the blessings of God's grace. The first one in, in verse 1. My sins are forgiven and my future is secure. And I'll be jumping around from, I'm not going in order through the chapter. Then verse 27 and 34, the blessing is that Jesus is praying for me. And then verse 18, future glory is greater than my present pain. And verse 6, my mind is filled with the peace of God. And the fifth one, verse 31, if God is for me, who can be against me? Verse 26, his spirit helps me in my weakness. And verse 28, God is working everything in my life for good. And verses 38 and 39, nothing can separate me from the love of God. As I said, this is not an exhaustive list. Those are some of the blessings of grace, only from one short chapter of God's word. So what is my response this morning? What is your response this morning? I believe that we will, that we will resist grace when our guilt and shame have not been adequately, adequately dealt with. No one is deserving of God's grace. If you're waiting until you become worthy of God's grace, don't hold your breath. If we deserved it, we wouldn't need it. We need to fully accept the forgiveness of God. Secondly, we accept grace when we, real, when we release all our expectations. As long as we feel we deserve special favors, we can't fully experience grace. God's grace always, always stands opposite to works or worthiness. Thirdly, we will resist grace when our pride is still paramount. Peter said, never shall you wash my feet. Chuck Swindoll puts it like this. Each time grace extends its hand, pride slaps it away. And Max Lucado again, he writes... We've inflated our balloon with our own hot air and can't get off the ground. Pride keeps us from admitting that we have a need. And fourthly, we will accept grace when we no longer put confidence in the flesh. You may hold up an impressive list of accomplishments, and I know some of you can. Paul, the author of this letter to the Romans, obviously did. He was a Jew. He was a strict Pharisee. He was educated. He was determined. 
He had all the qualifications, and then he met Jesus. And what does he say? Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And I put no confidence in the flesh. So what does it take to let grace in? We all want to do that. It takes an admission of our humanity. Verse 23 of our text says, We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. I referred to that earlier. The greater our grasp of our sin and our alienation from God, the greater our grasp of God's grace. Secondly, it takes an attitude of humility. As long as we consider ourselves God's gift to the world, we won't experience grace. Humility is fostered by a deep sense of dependence on God. And as we close this morning, I'd like to recall again for us a story that Jesus told. This is a parable, probably, probably the most familiar parable in all of Scripture. A man had two sons. The younger son said, give me my share of the estate. And his father gives it to him, and he leaves home for a far country, and he squanders everything. And a famine occurs, and he begins to be hungry. And he gets a job feeding pigs, and he fills his stomach with the food that the pigs are eating. He has nowhere to turn, and finally he comes to his senses, and he decides to go home. And he prepares a speech. He has a a speech all prepared on his way home. This is what he's going to say. Father, I have sinned. Let me be your servant. He still didn't understand grace. He wanted to pay for his father's favor by being a servant. He wasn't coming confidently to the throne of grace, was he? But he never got a chance to say a word of that speech. His father was looking for him, and he ran to meet him with a big bear hug and a kiss and plans for a party. What is Jesus trying to tell us with this story? This is what he's telling us. He's telling us this is what God is like. I've told you a story about your Father in heaven. Are you still? I don't know you individually, but I'm asking you this morning are you still in a far country? Why don't you turn and run home to an experience of grace and forgiveness and to hear the words, you are forgiven, you are my child, let's party. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your amazing grace. 
I thank you that I have been able to experience that in my own life so often, and I know many can identify with me. And I ask that you would forgive us where we so often take your blessings of grace for granted, where we so often forget to thank you for what you have done for us and what you are doing in our lives. I pray for each one here this morning. May we go from here encouraged, encouraged to come boldly to the throne of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.